Tonight's talk has a title, which is rare for me. The title is Joy. We've talked about the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, but we've been erring on the 10,000 sorrows side, it seems to me. <laughs> I thought it was time for a little levity. And those who know me a little bit probably realize I think I start every Dharma talk the same way in framing that whatever it is we're saying, whatever aspect of the teachings or our practice we're exploring, it's all in the service of our awakening. It's all about, so we never forget that it's just about these teachings that free us from the day-to-day angst, the day-to-day struggling and trying and working that we do always endlessly in, in every moment really that we're not really awake to just try and improve our lot even a little bit more and, uh, and just how tiring that is and that there is this other way this freer, lighter, bigger, warmer happier way of going about it I have a favorite, favorite poem. It's a poem by Hafiz, my favorite poet, contemporary of Rumi's. This is how it goes. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows and everything, while the sage, that's us, (laughs) with the wannabe sage anyway, who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps, 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 dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. (laughs) The small man, the uninstructed worldling, as the Buddha called us, we put everything in boxes. This is like this. I am like this. It's too hot in here. I just had a hot shower, so I think it's too hot in here. <laughs> we just make statements and box things into our assumptions. While the sage who has to duck his head when the moon is low because we're growing, right? The heart is growing wide. The mind is expanding, seeing the bigger picture all the time, ever broader perspective. Duck his head when the moon is low. Keeps on doing this practice. Keeps on dropping keys. This is the key, and the title of it is Dropping Keys. We make it possible for our beautiful, rowdy prisoners, these parts of ourselves that we've just neglected or not acknowledged or not even understood or known were there, to come out. But we aren't digging them up, you know, dragging them out, figuring it out. We're just making it possible, keeping on, keeping on. And they come up, who knows when they come up, and what they'll be when they come up, what triggers them. That's not our business. It's not to go get them. Our business is to keep on making it possible by being present so that we'll notice when something comes into our consciousness because our consciousness is available. It's an ongoing and beautiful. It's not so easy to look at our beauty. And several people today I was talking with, can you actually just... I gave somebody homework. Just like, think of how nice you are in any little tiny way. We don't want to do that. We, we feel like, oh, that's faking it. That's not true. Not really. Our unworthy disease in our culture. And these rowdy, isn't that a sweet word? We're not bad. We just have these little ways. <laughs> All our little habits and our ways of coping. They're rowdy. I just think that's the most generous, metaphor way of saying our you know, our shadow or our wounds or our triggers, traumas, beautiful rowdy prisoners. I'll say it right through. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage, who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful rowdy prisoners. So I want to talk about the beauty. We've talked a lot about rowdy prisoners over these days. So what is this joy, this 
I'm going to talk about just regular joy, worldly joy, spiritual joy, and appreciative joy, or mudita, the actual metta aspect of joy in another's joy. First of all, to, without laboring the point because we've been saying it, it's hard being human. And all of these, these 10,000 sorrows are, are difficult and we're sensitive and we're insecure and um, we're also, what's more, jumpy and nervy. I don't know if anybody read this article, but in, I think I read it in The Inquiring Mind a year and a half ago, or could have been longer ago, and some local... I think it was Rick Hansen. Anyway, some local commentary, some uh, psychologists wrote this article uh, in which they described our, you know, our evolution again as human beings, and they said basically we're jumpy and nervy. And if we weren't, we wouldn't have survived. We'd be the ones who'd have got eaten, you know. So we better be. <laughs> so here we are, these like ready for any problem, and then f- with the problems that will be inherent because of our human condition. And we're attempting to calm and soothe ourselves down. So it's quite a task. So that's why we need to be patient about it. And as I said last time I was talking to you, and as we've all been saying in our different ways, the way this mind is wired to successfully reproduce and survive on this extraordinary planet um, is to objectify and is to, you know, seek the, the pleasant and avoid the unpleasant around us in our world. And because that doesn't work, as I said before, we, it, only do, it does work, but only to a certain extent. We try and try, and we become exhausted. And we're all pretty tired. This is lovely little... Um, it's, an, it's older than uh, Soyul Rinpoche. Rinpoche, he's quoting an earlier teacher of his, this poem, many of you may have heard it. It's actually, I have it on CD. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind beaten helplessly by karma and neurotic thoughts. <laughs> like the relentless, it goes on and on, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. <laughs> Rest in natural great peace. And this feeling of this relentless, endless wheel spinning, trying, trying, trying. We don't know we're doing it until we have moments of peace. When we have moments of peace, we think, my God, I've just worked so hard just to try and keep my head above water, you know. It's exhausting. Rest, this exhausted mind beaten helplessly by karma, neurotic, just meaning neurotic thoughts is this ego-driven trying to make things better when they are as they are kind of thing. What we really want, I know we're going to get to joy, but really... What we really want is actually rest and relief from this exhausting way of going about things. Joy is, is great and fun, but there's a deep, deep relief that is the, is the depth of what we're actually deeply wanting. In fact, one of the earliest teachings of the Buddha, the Sutta Napata, a line that always stuck with me when I first read it was like he said, don't look for rest and relief in things that come and go. And yes, in things that come and go, so this whole idea of a Nietzsche and it's unreliable, but what struck me was when he says, don't look for rest and relief in these things, because actually that's all we're doing is looking for rest and relief from the exhausted way we normally go about things. So joy, happiness, spiritual ease, they're all many, many words because everyone experiences things slightly differently and different words speak to different people's experience. A big component of the joy of inner well-being is one of rest and one of peace. So as we um, develop, as a, oh, I don't know if that's the right word even, but there is a, this, a progression. As we become more skilled and familiar and understand ourselves, as we continue, keep dropping keys, keep practicing. And part of the way of seeing the trajectory of practice as we move along is there is work There is the discipline, strive on with diligence, the keep on doing your phrases, get up early in the morning, that kind of energy, you know, applied courage and enthusiasm, all these words. That's one part, absolutely essential part. And plus, we need to, with that, have this feeling of joy. 
without there being joy, there's just grimness. That just becomes like slogging. And who's going to keep doing that? We're not going to even do this if, it's, if that's all there is. So we need to have this joy accessible as part of the deal to help us as we go and to reward us as we go and to keep us therefore going. And with these two components, this one of doing and this feeling uh, that grows in us of uplift and expansiveness and delight and all these other things I'm going to talk about, um, together create the ability in the human mind, which is definitely in evolution from its jumpy, nervy, insecure state, to find this rest and relief that actually really is deeply what we're looking for. So these, the two components of our, all of our, everything we do, but our spiritual life has to have the one of the, the concentrating, the learning, the techniques, the, the practicing, plus this feeling of light, delight, light, joy. Now, so it's a little secret. When I am, um, in my earlier years of practice, I was a very good striver. It's my nature. I, you know, I'm achiever and that whole type A type. You know, it's my surviving strategy. And uh, and my first teacher had this sort of style of like work, work, work. Some of you may recognize those instructions. And I did. And I somehow bought into the belief because it was the way I had structured my own happiness. I always just assumed this was the way. Was that if I worked hard enough, then concentration, which I knew was what was supposed to be growing in me, would come about. And it did. But it was a lot of work, work, work. And later, later, after my years of not being able to let in meta-teachings, I began to. And uh, I began, as what happens as we go through this practice, I began to see through some of my games, some of my rowdy prisoners were coming out, and I was being able to make friends with them and acknowledge them and allow myself to not be perfect and all the things that we get to do. And so my heart began to lighten, and I began. I stumbled in backwards to Meta, as I told you already, and, and so the, the pep talk time happened, and the various aspects of practice brought, brought in the sense of joy that I had somehow missed in some way, skipped over. And, uh, and I began to have in my meditation experiences and retreat experiences, not the deepest samadhi necessarily, but related to being a meditator and a lot of times during my retreat times, I began to have way more moments of joy. And then I realized, of course, through experience, which is how we learn, that when there was joy happiness, even just the pep talk kindness, the result of that in my system was such deep calm and such serenity and such an openness and an ease and a clarity and a stability and all the things that I've been working and working to try and have came just like quite like magic. And I had I just am a slow learner, and I'm also not a very good listener. I kind of like to do it my own way, so I have to (laughs) figure it out by myself, which is sometimes it's a good thing in one way because when I figured it out, it's mine, but it also probably took me a lot longer than I needed if I'd had listened to some wise teachings a bit better. But anyway, that's the way I do it. And, uh, And then subsequently... I've come to really love one of the uh, progressive lists that the Buddha teaches, which is the uh, seven factors of awakening. A lot of you are familiar with these, which is is descriptive of how one factor leads to another, to another, to another. They just kind of like lead on. And I love this list because I love these factors and how they do it, and they actually do lead on. The first is mindfulness, of course. I'll just be very quick here. Mindfulness being present. The second, then, is being interested in what's when, when you're present. So it's the investigation of the dharmas. But it just means, like, be curious. Be really here. And, and uh, not just be here, but be here with some curiosity and start noticing what's here when you're here. Which leads, then, to an energetic output because it gets you get enthusiastic. You start actually doing something. When you're interested, you actually stay, and then you look, and then you're connecting. So the energy starts to build. When... In the natural progression of things, especially if you listen to your teachers, 
the next thing to arise is called piti, which is often translated as rapture. Some version of joy, happiness, delight, energy coming up. And, you know, it just gets to be fascinating and wow. And some people, it's amazing. Some people have interesting things in their body as, as they get more connected. And, you know, there's energy moving and all kinds of different things people have. But in there, there's, you know, sometimes it's, there's a feeling of lightness or weightlessness and all kinds of different things. But they're kind of fun. Not always, mind you. Some people are like, they're peculiar. They get twitches and things, but... But there is some aspect that's delightful. And then the next, this leads then to the next, which is called pasadi, which is serenity or tranquility or calmness. When there's this joy, then we relax. We're jumpy and nervy. And how else can we relax? We don't relax so well by telling ourselves we should and trying all the harder to do it right and getting more exhausted the old way. But when there's some reassurance, we find we just it's much more easily relax and we become serene. And then the next step after serenity is concentration. The mind stays where you want it to do. It just does. It's not bargaining. It's not saying, no, I won't. Yes, you will. No, I won't. It's much easier. It's like a super shortcut compared to the push, push, push to get concentrated, which I had done for so many years, which does work. But my goodness, when one teacher said to me, you know, concentration is relaxation. I was like, you're kidding me. <laughs> oh, my Lord. And I just really had to look at that. And even then, I couldn't just say, relax, Heather. But you know what got Heather to relax was joy. And so there's so many different ways of experiencing and inviting and recognizing and enhancing joy and its various relatives into our hearts and minds, meta being one of the best, of course. As with meta, I mentioned to you, and this is sort of by way of a warning, because we can so easily get into that, or the way we've always done everything, which is chasing the things which we think will make us happy and avoiding or at least judging the others. With metta, as I said, there are, there's a continuum of the experience of metta. There is the juiciest, most loving, really feeling very turned on and connected and dramatic and often teary or whatever. And then there's a friendliness. I was sort of downgrading as I went. There's a friendly openness. Remember, I was talking about an acceptance and just not judging and even the ability to be okay in the face of the things you completely dislike. That's all is metta, the range of metta. And as with that, so with joy. And so there is, there's joy, there's that most you know, profound choirs of angels, you know, the baby's just born kind of, except in my case it took 24 hours because he didn't open his eyes for 24 hours, so I was like, where are the angels? You know? <laughs> I did get it, but it was a delayed reaction, but those moments, some of those big, big moments, the profound moments and awesome moments that are so thrilling, which is definitely joy, no question. But the word, even the word, for some people that word joy implies this high expectation. And so beware, because that's not all joy is. Joy, spiritual joy, deep joy has whole, a whole continuum of experience, and I'll describe some of them. So this first one, rapture. There's a whole teaching I could talk about different kinds of rapture that the Buddha talked about, pervading rapture. Your whole body feels just like it's glowing and golden and beautiful. Delight, ecstasy, ecstatic dance. I think of the Sufis. Anyone done any Sufi dancing, Sufi whirling, and that state of, of joy that can come. Intensity, amazement, emotion, all of that level. That's like the, the most intense. To downgrade it slightly, I would use words like delight or um, awe. You know, when this, it's, we'd had, uh, we, Sue had the, the rainbow experience that no one else managed to have on this retreat for some reason. But, you know, they always have a touch of awe to me and natural beauty. Uh, that quiet delight, not so rushy and thrilling, but expansive and, you know, exquisite, those kinds of things. Um, rightness. 
you know, there's a feeling of like, oh yes, that's joy, that's inner inner joy. In there is a, a sense of, um, in the same level of, of uh, inner, inner joy is a, a confidence. There's that security. It's like, you know, when it's like, that's right. I know. When we have an insight, it has that feeling of like, wow, isn't that amazing? It isn't earth-shattering maybe, but it's got that, this flavor of, of wonder. When there is a certain amount in our meditation, and this grows with our practice, and you all have had more and more access to this over this week and in, in your various other retreats, our practice becomes interesting. We get fascinated. It's, it's neat. We like it. It isn't just plain work, right? And it's that element that keeps us going, enthuses us. So I'd crank it down a bit and say, then there is more the sense of um, calm and serenity. It's still, I would call it, under this topic of joy. It's beautiful and peaceful and much more still. I love the word serene. Um, the quiet, more quiet, more soft, not so thrilling. One of the, uh, and some of you know these, I'm sort of including a few of the teachings here, but um, in, in progression as one practices, one of the uh, progressions is how one progresses through jhana practice, through concentration, deep concentration. And initially in concentration practice is piti, this feeling of rapture and sort of subtle thrill, sometimes not so subtle thrill. And as one progresses in concentration and the mind calms down, that thrilling feeling subsides and you're left with this sweet feeling. It's more quiet, it's like notching it down. It doesn't mean it's not joy. Ease, relief, soothing, settled. And then it becomes more so a sort of gentleness, tenderness. Ah, oh, that feeling. That's still joyful. And then it becomes even cooler. And then we get into the realm of, and at the end of those factors, seven factors, Mindfulness, interest, enthusiasm, delight, serenity, stability, concentration. We get to equanimity. In the Brahma Viharas, metta, loving kindness, karuna, compassion for all the 10,000 sorrows, mudita for all the 10,000 joys, we get to upekka, equanimity. In the ten paramis, the ten ways of perfections of being that one or the other of us were referring to in one of the talks, the tenth of these ways of perfect being, so refined as a human can be, the tenth equanimity. It's a cool feeling. In the jhanas, if anyone's done any jhana practice or you're thinking of doing it, as one progresses through degrees of concentration, the fourth jhana factor is simply cool equanimity. It's very, very still doesn't have the heat of passion. It's dispassionate, but it's, it's not like cold and dead and detached, but it's this cool settling down of all of this exhaustion and struggling. Deeply stable. This is a, a very mature and vast aspect of joy. And I say all this just so that we don't we don't make a mistake and then think that if we don't have you know, the, the choirs of angels and the heavenly hosts that we aren't actually feeling joy. Don't narrow joy to you know, gushy emotion. Another aspect, and I'll talk about it again. Maybe I'll come to this a little later. Yeah. So I would say, um, as I said in my other talk, and I often find this is the case, metta is the same, their metta, many of the aspects of our practice are twofold. They are a form of practice, a means of practice. They are also a fruit of meditation. They're both the result of meditation and they are how to meditate, doubly. Metta is the same thing. So kindness is a way to practice, and it is what happens when we practice. 
and they are mu not, they're mutually inclusive, they are interdependent, and they grow together. And so we deliberately bring into our practice some sense of the heart, and as we keep practicing, we find that heart keeps growing and there is increasing warmth in what we're doing. So they go together. So I'm going to talk about them in these two ways, because one we kind of deliberately invite, and the other we just simply receive and enjoy. This is Goethe, about the first, about the, the generating of the heart. I've come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It's my personal approach that creates the climate. It's my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it's my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated and a person is humanized or dehumanized. If we treat people as they are, we make them worse. If we treat people as they could be, we help them become what they are capable of becoming. So there is this element of intention. And in this meta practice, it is an intended practice. We, we've talked about that. So as I already mentioned, and we'll say a little more about this jumpy, nervy being, in order to be able to change the mode, the strategy of survival, which we've always done, of objectifying and pursuing and avoiding, we need to calm down. We can't see ourselves doing it, or how we do it, or when we do it, or the effect of it, or anything, when the mind is so jumpy and nervy. It just cannot see it. It's just so normal that we don't know what we're doing. We're not conscious. In order to become more conscious, we need to calm down. We need to settle and slow and sta stabilize. I like the word, this, develop a steady gaze. And I think of little kids who can't sit still for a second. And, uh, and I, I love this image. I have this image of a little kid running around with a video camera. And, you know, it's a bit of a mess what they actually produce there because it's a bit of foot here and then some sky and then somebody's face and then a cat and it's just a mess <laughs> because they don't have a very steady gaze to actually perceive what's actually going on. It's a little bit fractured and that's like us. <laughs> <laughs> bit of this, bit of that. And so we need to steady this gaze, steady this viewfinder so that we can start to see what's really going on. But to do this with this jumpy, nervy, insecure setup, we have to be calm. And we need the soothing that comes with joy and all heart matters in order to relax and trust that sitting here and being with what's here, especially when it's the things we would rather avoid, is actually the way to go. So the very first thing we need is this calming down. And think of a child who's upset. I think the Irish say, having a paddy. <laughs> when a kid's having a paddy, you know, you don't just say, stop it. <laughs> You know, you have to soothe them, reassure them, encourage them. So these are the ways that we can practice joy, practice bringing in this sense of, of serenity or contentment or delight. You know, you cheer the child up. You say, look at this, look at this. They're all upset. You say, look, there's a bird in the tree. You know, a crying baby, even tiny babies, you take outside and you point and they look at the trees and they forget their little paddy for a minute. It's, we expand them and show them something that's delightful. We exactly the same. We need these. There's all kinds of ways. So this is what I'm going to get to, some of the ways to help ourselves do this. A thing I discovered in my own practice that I hadn't appreciated anything like, this is what it, you, you, we see into the depths of things increasingly. You just see, oh my goodness, I thought I knew about that, but wow, I hadn't ever realized how profound that was. Was one time, a um, couple of years ago, I think, um, in a, uh, my own retreat, I really came to term, at least I really discovered a whole lot about doubt, the hindrance doubt. The five hindrances being wanting something, not wanting something, averse to it, Restless, agitated, squirminess, dull, sinking, sleepiness, and doubt. 
And I kind of thought, okay, doubt. I know when I doubt something or doubt someone, and, and then it's not there. So I kind of ignored doubt. The others seemed to be more squeaky somehow. I came to really explore and discover that doubt is really pervasive, and doubt is there almost all the time when the sense of me is present. And when I'm in a sense of ease and joy and awe and calm, everything's fine. But as soon as I don't have any of, any of those present, as soon as there's the old, come on, Heather, get it together, or anything, it's actually there's doubt. I doubt that it's okay. I don't trust this moment, so I'd better do something. So in comes me, and in comes the planning or the judging or the anything else. Up starts the old me, Ing. When there's no doubt at all, there's complete trust, everything's fine, I, I don't need to do anything, so I can, I can drop myself then. I found that very interesting to discover. So things that reassure me, that reassure the doubting me, allow me to, to, I, to just be and to not do. I'm just popping that in there because those who, who like lists and things might find that interesting in, in your own practice sometime. When we are calmed down and relaxed and reassured or soothed, we can face difficult things. When we are upset, we can't see it. We don't want to see it. We need to be not just calm, but we need to feel safe. And we need to feel relatively content to be able to do the work of seeing the rowdy prisoners. Which is why we've all been, I mean, the queen of humor is Sylvia, that's why we all love her, and everyone's laughing and relaxing so that we can actually see these deep truths. We can't when we're not content in that way. We absolutely need to have this. So humor. Inspiration. The refuges. Here's a list of some of the things that I find help. The refuges, yes. Um, gratitude. Fabulous practice. Every so often, just gratitude. It's like, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The heart relaxes as it opens. Delight comes. The, the cup can be half full rather than half empty. It just brings up the spirit. It's nourishing. It's soothing. It allows us to deal with rowdy prisoners if they happen to come up. It's essential. Gratitude. If you don't feel grateful for what you have, what makes you think you'll be happy with more? <laughs> That's an unknown quote. And here's another. This is, this is all in this a few little tiny things around gratitude. Rumi says this, when someone is counting gold for you, don't look at your hands, don't look at the gold, look at the giver. And another, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Gratitude is what turns a meal into a feast. Gratitude. Um, the Buddha actually recommended to gladden the heart. The Buddha recommended doing the refuges, counting your own qualities, looking to your own abilities and qualities and goodness. We don't tend to do that in the West. We somehow think that that's indulgent or inappropriate, and with our unworthy disease, we just don't even think of it. It's a great practice. Appreciate yourself, bless yourself, reflect on whatever abilities and capacities and qualities you know you manifest. It's so uplifting. It's soothing, it's encouraging, it's wonderful. And then there's, this isn't in any particular order, nourish our spirits in, what ways do you nourish your spirit? Being in nature, so huge. Nature's so peaceful, nature's so powerful, nature's awesome, nature's truthful, nature's honest. Oh, hugely nourishing, we need this kind of nourishment. Soothes us, calms us down. I could tell endless stories of awesome nature stories. And then there's things like playfulness, playing. 
We laugh together, yes. We play together. Why is this so... Why do we play so much? We love it. It brings us together. You know, ball games are so much more popular than meditation. Because <laughs> playful is... Yay! We love it. Music. I don't know if I should put this on the tape, but I'm going to put it on this tape. I've just taken up the saxophone. <laughs> I love it. It's it's now just past the the shrieking and honking. (laughs) Concerts. All of the young. What unites the generation is the music they share. In fact, I would say the first major joy I ever had that had some depth to it was um, when I was 19 years old at the Drury Lane Theatre in London um, and I went with my boyfriend to see Hair. It changed my life, actually. And it was the delight of the singing and the music of the expression, of the sincere expression of the love of these people for the truth for themselves, their authenticity. They weren't going to go and kill people in Vietnam and they weren't going to work for the man. They were going to actually live their own lives independently. I was just like, my people! (laughs) (laughs) But it was not just a neat thing. It was like more with the music and the joy of it. I think concerts are way more joyful than movies. Conda and I need a discussion about this. She's a movie. I'm not a movie person. But I come out of a concert feeling that I've connected with everybody, and I don't feel that if I've come out from a movie. There's something about music. Anyway, I shouldn't go on in any one of these things. I'll never get this Dharma talk finished. But <laughs> Singing. I gave you the quote the other day about singing in a choir. You know, that, the sharedness of that, the joy of it. Cooperation, anything that's cooperative. It's fun to do a barn raising or a house cleaning or a, you know, a bunch of you get together and we do this. A group of our women friends, every so often we'll all go to somebody's house and do whatever it is they want done together. It's the funnest thing. <laughs> it's much more fun than doing, it's, you know, it, it's the shared, co- all of that, right? We, these are all necessary. The Buddha said you even can't do this, this practice. You cannot develop a spiritual life on your own. It's absolutely impossible. It's 100% necessary to be in the company of others for this. A couple more things on humor because of how it just so heals and allows us to relax and handle difficult things. Who saw the um, YouTube clip that went rushing around the internet last April of um, Bodhisattva in the metro? A few, do you remember? It was amazing, and if you didn't see it, it's called Bodhisattva in the Metro. It's a Frenchman, it's a, you know, it's Paris, and it's just silent, and it's eight minutes, and it's just a man who comes into one of the carriages in the the subway, and... um, hardly able to contain his smile and he just tries to contain it until he can't and he starts spluttering and laughing and what happens and how everybody is so contagious, he has such a contagious now everyone is laughing and laughing and laughing and then stopping and then somebody else comes in and everyone pretends to just be sort of normal and then they just (laughs) it's just, it's so exquisite and extraordinary and it's one of the most funniest things you see anyway, Bodhisattva in the metro people sent it to their friends because it made them happy. Because we love each other and we want each other to be happy. Sing every day, even the blues. Who said that? Goethe. One ought every day at least to hear a little... Who said it? Goethe didn't say that. Didn't say that. No. But he did say, one ought every day at least to hear a little song, read a good poem, see a fine picture, and if it's possible, speak a few reasonable words. (laughs) I've got two little tiny epitaphs. Somebody was talking about death over this retreat, so I thought I'd lighten that one up. This one is, um, worked 40 years at a job he hated so he could buy lots of stuff. This one is got everything done, died anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. 
I don't know. I could go either way. There's something also. Should I a little more humor? Could we do with a little more humor? <laughs> Briefly, I don't know if any of you have heard me say this before, but and it's brief, but um, it's, a, it's, it's a communication in a log for um, when you're a pilot and you come back from a flight, you write in the log anything about the plane, and then the engineer comes along and fixes it. So these are, so uh, P is pilot, S is the, uh, oh, P is for the problem, and S is the solution. P. Left inside main tire almost needs replacement. S. Almost replace left inside main tire. <laughs> P. Something loose in cockpit. S. Something tightened in cockpit. <laughs> P. Evidence of leak on right main landing gear. S. Evidence removed. <laughs> P. DME volume unbelievably loud. S, volume set to more believable level. <laughs> P, friction locks cause throttle levers to stick. S, that's what they're there for. <laughs> P, suspect crack in windscreen. S, suspect you're right. <laughs> P, number three, engine missing. <laughs> S, engine found on right wing after brief search. P, target radar hums. S, reprogram target radar with words. <laughs> P, mouse in cockpit. S, cat installed. <laughs> it's good for us. Hmm. One of the ways I've mentioned to a few people that I see this practice as it develops in us, as we develop with it, um, is that the, the ego, the stuka, the struggling sense of who we are that tries so hard is like a small, it's like our child. It's like the small part of ourselves. And what we do in the practice is we don't get it together and we don't fix her. What we do is we develop a big part of ourselves. And when we put the um, focus on the bigness that's ourselves, the small one resumes a less significant role. So um, I was having this conversation with somebody just today. When um, we are frightened, let's say, and somebody says, it's okay, it's just passing. You'll feel better when you've had something to eat and your blood sugar levels come up. That is the wise one, reassuring the little one. And um, as we do our practice, instead of focusing on the little one and its upsets or its things that frustrate it or delight it and the, the usual part of our reactive self, the ego-based normal way, we instead turn to look at how am I with this situation and how the I part that we're looking at with the situation is the big part, is the wise part of ourselves. The one that says, oh, I'm getting all upset over this. I'm making a mountain out of a molehill here. Or I'm really worried. Or can tell the truth of like, oh, what a relief it is to be able to tell the truth. The part that is the knower of what's happening. This capacity the human mind has to know itself, to watch itself. The watching part, <coughs> the big part. We're growing our, our, our mature self. And that part can hold more tenderly and allow the little one to to do its little wheel spinnings. I just wanted to say that for some reason. I don't know why I put it in my talk at that point, but I did. So there I said it. Metta, awareness practice, when we do awareness practice, insight practice, that's what's happening. The, the part of the mind that's becoming increasingly aware is aware of itself, and it's aware of its reactions and aware of its struggles. In metta practice, it's the same thing. Awareness is kindness. And it's our kindness that can actually see our, our behaviors, our troubles, our worries. Kindness is the same thing as awareness. It's the meta aspect of mindfulness. Kind awareness. As we have moved into how joy 
happiness is a fruit of practice, when we are able to see our small selves from a bigger perspective by stepping back and being able to say, oh, I see, I understand, that's what I'm doing. There's a relief, there's delight, there's, there's forgiveness, there's allowance, there's space. It's not so serious. The little one that we only identify with when, we don't, when we're not wise enough is oppressive. It's scary, it beats us up, we believe everything it thinks. When it's mad at us, we are upset. The big one doesn't get so oppressed. That's the freedom that comes. And with that sense of freedom is, at the very least, the coolest part of joy, which is relief. What a relief to see that I just forget and get irritated. And then it passes, and it isn't all of who I am. It's just my small self when I shrink inside myself. So we take ourselves more lightly, and we can actually laugh at ourselves more. We can, we can actually, it doesn't matter so much if we didn't get our talk quite together or, you know, we've blown something or whatever it is. There's, there's increasing, it just, we just don't take ourselves so seriously. It's such a huge relief. That's one of the hugest joys of practice is just things are held in a bigger space. Awareness is broader. The heart is bigger. It's okay. It's just whatever it is. It's not that big of a deal. Don't sweat the small stuff. It's all small stuff. That increasingly is how one feels as we understand, as our minds get clearer. And with this expanded and expanding consciousness, really, then with a bigger perspective that's available from a bigger viewpoint, uh, we see the deep truths, which, again, liberate us and, and reassure us. We see that everything comes and goes. This too shall pass this spacious state starts taking over. And so the, the results of our practice are these feelings of ease and, and, uh, and delight and lightness of heart. I am, I've said it many, many times in Dharma talks, I'm way funnier than I used to be. You know? <laughs> it's just like I'm not quite so self-conscious. You know, conscious. And so it's much more fun. We also see... Yeah, we see the deep truths of impermanence and we can hold them more delicately. So, for instance, Rilke, the knowledge of impermanence that haunts our days, especially when we're small, is their very fragrance. The preciousness that's there with impermanence. When we're small and shrunken, it's just scary and we're insecure. When we're bigger, we can say, isn't this exquisite, this moment? Who knows how many moments? It's, it's exquisite and tender and fragile and unreliable, but it isn't just the scary stuff that the small one feels. This bigness, this delight is the fruit of practice. Why we practice, we, this is what we're really doing it for, to be able to feel more this way. Many of you have heard, any of you have heard me teach a Dharma talk, I've probably said this little story. I seem to be saying it all the time these days because it's such a great story. I've even told it to some of you in a small group on this retreat, but I'll tell everybody. It's such a good example of this. What we're, why we, this is how we want to be. My friend Carol is Irish, one of many children. Her mother is, very, is getting pretty old, little old lady, Irish lady came to visit her in Vancouver and uh, one day had to go to the bank. Went to the bank and Carol stood back and her mother went up to the teller to do her banking business and Carol could see from behind that the teller was being really not very nice with her mother. And so she was all feeling, you know, protective about her mum and, uh, and she was watching this, you know, behavior. And so she stepped up to kind of, you know, protect her mother and tell the woman off or something just in time to hear her mother say to the teller, have you ever thought of doing different kind of work, dear? <laughs> Isn't that great? That's equanimity, that's compassion, that's like not being small and feeling all victimized by this big mean teller who is towering over her, by the way, because she's small. She was just, she was fine. She just had sympathy for this poor person who was having a hard day. One of our teachers, one of our colleagues, Gil Fronstahl, he, I heard him say at some Dharma talk or other, he said, doing this practice is like premature aging. So it's like we're developing that kind of capacity that this little wise old lady had of actually not having to take on everybody's problems and being able to just actually be helpful. <laughs> 
This is the kind of thing that comes with spiritual practice. This ability, this capacity, it grows. It gets more fun. She was fine. It was Carol who was all freaked out. I would just put a little caveat because it's just sensible to do this. When we have, particularly in meditation, but in life it's true, states that are joyful or delightful or awesome or any of these beautiful states, beware because of that that little mind of ours that does its objectifying and its pursuing it's so easy then to say, oh, that's good. I want it. And when we don't have it then to think, oh, I've blown it. Oh, it's not working. This isn't good enough. We do this with everything, but we do it. And when in talking about beautiful states of mind and heart, they are a total setup. And so we so easily fall into that. That's how it's supposed to be. And then anything less is some kind of failure. doesn't measure up. And we often take it upon ourselves that we have failed somehow. It's absolutely not true. Joy comes as a result of practice, but it comes in its own way. We never know when and how. We're not in charge of it. Our job is to keep dropping keys. That's it. Not to drag out those beautiful, rowdy prisoners, but they will come and they will go. Beware. It's called the corruptions of insight. When we have started, especially having rapture and you know, pervading you know, beautiful states in the body and very great calm and all, it's so easy to then start expecting or wanting or, and certainly getting frustrated or, or, you know, disappointed. So be very wary. It's such a setup for the way our minds have been designed. I haven't, and I need to go just briefly to the, um, all of these joyful states, but the shared aspect of them. I mean, uh, our happiness, laughing together, singing together. Um, I mean, the reason I took up the saxophone was so I could actually jam with people. I didn't want to do it just all alone. I wanted to actually have the experience of music being shared in a spontaneous way. That was my motivation initially, because of the connection. When uh, we talk of mudita, the third of these uh, brahmaviharas, it isn't just joy for oneself. It's shared joy and it's not even that it's joy when another is happy being happy with them and it's an interesting thing to reflect on because we tend I think it's again our survival our biological wiring when somebody falls and is having a hard time we tend to reach to help them and when somebody's doing just fine thank you we tend to just think oh what about me it's not so, see, see if this isn't true for yourself, but compassion comes forward as soon as there's a problem, very easily. But when people are really successful, what are all the books about? I mean, if you read those, or even glimpse at those magazines at the checkout stand, they're all about trying to pull down those who are apparently successful. How to, like, take away their joy. Because it's hard for us to be happy for people's success. Surely they're just a mere human, or whatever. It's actually, and, and it's interesting. It's a challenging thing to be happy with others, but it's a beautiful thing when it happens. When we genuinely know somebody and they're having a great time, it's and to be able to say, "Oh God, that's fantastic news! I am just so happy with you." Isn't that that's the greatest thing? That's that's actually mudita. So it's knowing joy, but actually being able to witness and and uh, be delighted that others also are happy. It's a very fine, expanded joy, beautiful. That's, uh, that's the uh, Brahma-Vahari of appreciative joy or empathetic joy. Or, um, it has a near enemy, as they all have, which is where we tend in our small selves to fall to, of course. Uh, it's interesting, the near enemy that's taught of... of uh, empathetic joy, it is exuberance. And actually I believe that it speaks to that attachment, that wanting it, the corruption that I just mentioned of wanting to have it so it, we, it can fe- we can feast on it. It's the needing of it, the hunger for it. 
and then getting off on, you know, being happy for its own sake, which separates us, can separate us. It's when we can stay open-hearted and connected in it that it's appreciative joy. It's an interesting thing to just be aware of how we can forget the person and then get off on the delight, as it were, itself, and not stay open to and, and uh, interested in the person. The phrase that's recommended for practicing appreciative joy as a wish, even though now our retreat is nearly over, but I want you to know these right before you go, is may your happiness continue and may your happiness grow. It's just like wishing that for the other one, extending. And really and truly, I know the others will agree with me and I speak for them, when we do what we do with you and share this journey together, why we're doing this is we're saying this. May I'm giving this to you in the spirit of mudita, actually. May this help you. May your happiness continue. And this is why we love doing this. I mean, yes, it's work and we, you know, it's long hours and there's lots of things to deal with and carry and people's stuff and all the rest of it. But the, the most extraordinary beauty of it is the mudita quality of being able to wish people's happiness to continue, knowing that it actually is helpful and and we see it and we watch your happiness grow right in front of our eyes and we just go like, yay, cheering you on. It's, It's really a mudita to do this. And for each other it is. And each, even in the retreat, everybody being here, we're actually giving our care with doors and on time and all these things. It's that spirit of may this be helpful, may this help you be more free. It's such a beautiful thing that we share. This is what mudita is and how it feels and how it helps. The last of the Brahma Viharas is equanimity. Upeka is the word. Upeka, funny word. And this is that, that the wise, the big one, the big view, the overview, the big picture, putting things in perspective, not getting caught with you know, the small stuff. Spacious, stable, profound. Um, a teacher at the last retreat that I was just teaching a retreat right before coming here, he used the, uh, the image for equanimity as um, a weighted keel in a big sailboat. The keel is like it keeps things stable. So even in big seas, we don't get so tossed about and you know upset. It keeps this deep steadiness. It's a depth. It's profound. It's a strong stability that comes from understanding. When we really understand, we go, yep, I see that's how it is. It's, it's the really mature compared to the little, the little self, which is, oh, I love this. Oh, I can't stand this. You know, then there's the bigger self who's like, oh, yes, I know you're tired, dear. You know, you need to go to bed now. That's enough. You know, we need a little more meta now. That's for now. We need to go for a walk. That's the parent. And then granny is the, is the real equanimity. It's like watching the whole thing, sitting in the rocking chair. I know what that was like. I remember when I was young. <laughs> it's steady. If they're in fact wise, my grandmother wasn't one of those kind of grannies, but... <laughs> And then the last tiny piece I want to say, I know I'm going on. Um, this is a little tiny aside. I heard this when, uh, it was in my teacher training, uh, we spent some time with Arjun Amaro, one of the um, monastics who lives really nearby here, and he talked about um, giving Dharma talks to us. And he talked about being with Ajahn Shah at the monastery where he was a training monk in uh, Thailand, and uh, at different days of the month, the public people from the village and local people will come to the monastery and they'll chant together the refuges and precepts and the the metta sutta and then and the monks will give talks and sometimes they do this all night long on a full moon and so this was a night that um, Arjun Chah said to Arjun Amaro or maybe it wasn't even Arjun Amaro it could have been Arjun Samedo I think he was talking about the other monk but anyway it doesn't matter principle is he said you give the talk tonight so that he gave his talk and an hour went by and then Arjun Chah says carry on so he goes on talking and the monks don't have quotes and Goethe and stuff they just have to and so, and then he talked for another hour, and then Arjun Jaya said, carry on. <laughs> and for four hours, he kept saying, carry on. And I was thinking tonight, if I didn't have, like, you know, a schedule, 
I just wonder how long I could do it. I think I could do this for hours. Anyway, I will restrain myself, but I have to say just another little tiny piece. <laughs> if you can handle it. Can you handle it? Just a few more minutes. Okay. This is such great stuff. And it's because the retreat is almost over, and we haven't, and I need to include this, um, metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, kindness in the presence of difficulty. Oh, this is hard. Appreciative joy. When there's joy and joy in another, being able to be connected and happy for the other and not just it for oneself. Equanimity, the keel in the boat, the granny, the stability that sees the big picture. These aren't separate. They are individual teachings, but they all work together. And I just want to mention briefly, if there was just compassion in the face of of difficulty with no mudita, then we get worn down. This is where caregivers burn out. They need to remember that there is joy also. There is beauty. They need to laugh and be happy and be playful to bring some relief to the otherwise overburdening of the fact that there are the 10,000 sorrows. We need the joys and the sorrows. We need, for instance, um, the compassion to keep mudita from becoming just plain old exuberance and la 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 and isn't it fun and groovy and let's not think about the problems you know denial they need both that for it to be truthful really honest really deal with the joys and the sorrows of life realistic we need equanimity to help so that for instance compassion when there's trouble doesn't just become depressed doesn't get bummed out but is able to say you know, life is hard, and keep that sense of, of spaciousness while dealing with difficulty. They, they need each other. They hold on to each other. Without upeka, then we fall into the near enemies. You know, when we love, when something's meta, love, loving, we so easily get into our little self, which gets all attached and excited and goes chasing after. But equanimity is what brings the granny forward to say, oh, very nice, dear, yes, and soon that will be in the garbage. You know, it's just like it keeps things in proportion, you know, so we don't get caught up in this near enemies. And uh, equanimity itself has a near enemy. They all do. And the near enemy of equanimity is this broad, wise, calm, which can become detached, empty, 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 doesn't matter who does what or says what, doesn't matter, empty. It isn't relational, it isn't warm enough. We need metta and we need joy and we even need sorrow to keep the, the, the aliveness, the, the fact that love, love matters and fear matters and that our, our, our individual hearts are so vulnerable and so full so that Equanimity doesn't forget this, the, the human, doesn't forget the, the feelings that are when you know, we're humans with our, our loves and our losses and our hopes and our fears. So it, it alone, it isn't just about the big picture and being wise and being a granny. It's also being a kid who gets excited and gets disappointed and so on and so forth. All of them belong with each other. So this, it's a complete teaching. We emphasize metta this, this time, and compassion was our emphasis. It just evolved that way. But all of these are, um, we need to know them and to uh, invite them and explore them and, and uh, own them. They're all part of being human, all part of this life. The great, wise freedom that comes from spiritual practice and the ups and the downs and the, and the joys and the sorrows of being human. There at the back, in the, in the middle of that altar at the back, is Kuan Yin. And, uh, and she is the, the, the uh, embodiment of compassion. But with, she's got lots of upeka when you look at her. She's just so stable and steady and fine. And, but she can handle all the joys of the, all the sorrows of the world. Her heart is huge and tender, tender, but she isn't sad. She's stable. She's got so much wisdom with her all of it together. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final, says Rilke. Okay, I've stopped.
I'm just going to read Dropping Keys. I'm going to just say Dropping Keys once last I want to leave you with it, and then we'll stay silent for a few minutes. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage, who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoner. Let's just sit quietly. your patience and your attention and I wish this in the most mudita filled way be helpful to you as you continue in your lives and your practice thank you so much thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate